You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. Which are no good, Ann Camp. You are listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the West Side representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. What's up, Rev? Oh, everything. How are you, sir? Now, I can't complain, man. Now, I do have to tell you this there's something that we're going to have to address, and I think it needs to be addressed publicly before we get into this episode. Now, I've been told that. We've been getting a lot of complaints about your microphone. Uh, some of our supporters and listeners have even suggested that you might be using some type type of Fisher Price Kitty microphone to, to record this podcast. I don't know what it is, but I do want to give you an opportunity to explain what's been going on with my brother's microphone and has that uh, has that been fixed? So the first thing I'll start off with is that it has been fixed. Um, and I'll give myself this caveat that I come into the office at 6 a.m. on Tuesdays uh, to get ready to record the podcast. Uh, and so having not woken up as well as I should and been unfamiliar with uh, all of the recording and microphones, that's not my area of expertise. Uh, I was instructed to turn the mic all the way down on the gain uh, and I turned it all the way up on the game. <laughs> But I, I was I had the insight see, to send a picture to the real technician so that he could get me sorted out. And here we are. No problem. He, he did get it sorted out. My, my man, Bo, <laughs> said, hey, man, you might want to turn the game down. He, he sent him the picture and it was actually all the way up. So hopefully that has all been cured. You know, I had to rib you just a little bit for that one. But uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that we got that fixed. I'm glad to hear we're not using the, the Fisher Price mic for this very serious podcast. So that's that's even better. Uh, but 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 as you know, this is this is Super Bowl week, and I want to find out who you are cheering for uh, in this Super Bowl coming up Sunday. Well, you know, I don't want to go to uh, a previous podcast, Justin, but I'm going to explore the uh, the upward limits of irrationality uh, in your theorem uh, because I will be pulling for the Bears. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm just hoping for a good game that's entertaining. Uh, I'll be rooting actively when the Bears are in the Super Bowl. Wow. Yeah, you took it to its upper reaches <laughs> for sure. <laughs> That's a good one, man. I'm, I'm going to have to think on that one for a minute. How do I eliminate that that type of that level of irrationality <laughs> from, my, from my theorem? Um, well, well, look, man, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm somewhat conflicted. OK, so for folks who listen to this show, they know that I'm a Bears fan, too. Right. My family, most of my family is from the Bear, from Chicago. My dad was always a Bears fan. So I was a Bears fan. But I am from Denver. And so I do cheer for the Broncos, too. Now, that makes it very hard for me to cheer for the Chiefs to get two consecutive Super Bowls. It makes it really tough to make that even more complicated. I do like Patrick Mahomes, though. So. I like Patrick Mahomes, the hater in me. And I'm just being honest about this. The hater in me also doesn't want Brady to win another Super Bowl. 
And then I got family members who are from KC, and I really don't want to hear their mouth. Shout out to Brian Cole. And I really don't want to hear their mouths when it comes to KC winning again. But I guess I'll say I want to see a good game, and I'll be rooting for Patrick Mahomes uh, to win, although I wish I had other options. So, so I'm with you. This is kind of tough. I'm not going to be rooting for some, a team that's not actually in the, in the game, but I am conflicted, brother. So to a certain extent, I, I feel your pain. Well, we got a lot of good information coming up. We got a lot of good conversation coming up in this episode. So as usual, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And the first thing I want to talk about, Chris, is what's been going on with this whole GameStop controversy. I want to talk about GameStop. Now, as many of you know, unless you were hiding under a rock. Hedge funds and Reddit traders had an epic battle in the stock market last week, and I guess it continues on this week. It's caused such a stir that folks such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz actually agreed on something. Now, that honeymoon didn't last for long, uh, but they are still both condemning the actions of the same players. Uh, and so that that says a lot. Those two don't agree on hardly anything. But I don't want, as usual, I don't want to assume that our audience knows a whole lot about hedge funds. I'm sure some of you, some of you do. Some of you might not. So so if you would allow me to give you a little bit of background and I'm no uh, financial expert by any means, but allow me to give you some background on, on what's going on here. Now, in 1949, the first hedge fund was started by a man named uh, Alfred Winslow Jones. And, and Jones was a very interesting person, to say the least. Jones was a journalist, kind of like a little bit of a spy and perhaps even a communist sympathizer. Now, who would have thought that hedge funds were created by someone who might be a communist sympathizer? But I, 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 let me go on. Now, his objective when creating hedge funds was to create a market neutral portfolio. And he did this by buying assets that he thought would rise in the market, while at the same time selling short stocks that he expected to lose in the market. Using this method, it allows hedge funds to make money in a good market, but also make money in a bad market, to make money when the market is up and make money when the market is down because they're actually uh, 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 hedging their bets against uh, some of these stocks that they think are going to go down. Now, hedge funds have made some people, a lot of money. Uh, one of those people is George Soros. And if you pay attention to politics, you hear George Soros's name all over. He is a uh, he perf- he funds a lot of progressive causes and everybody who's not uber conservative is always being uh, uh, charged with uh, receiving money from him and doing his bidding, which is probably overspoken. But his hedge fund, which is called Quantum Fund, actually bet against the British pound. And in betting against the British pound, again, saying that they felt that stock would go down, he earned one billion dollars. And some would even say that he broke the Bank of England. Now, it's important to know that hedge funds can only issue securities privately to qualified investors. And this market has been dominated really by very large institutions. But here enters uh, outfits like Robin Hood. Robinhood uh, is a commission-free stock trading and investing app really created to uh, make space for what they call retail traders. 
Now, these are small traders, small investors with accounts from, you know, $500 to uh, $2,500. And here's what went down last week and, and a little before that. The hedge funds, which are the big boys, were shorting GameStop's stock. Basically, they're saying, hey, we think this stock is going to go down. So we're going to borrow the stocks and we're going to we're going to sell it. Right. So they're, they're shorting the stock. But a group of Reddit, a group on Reddit, which called themselves the Wall, Wall Street Bets, right? They were using Robinhood and they saw that these hedge funds were shorting GameStop's, uh, GameStop's uh, stock. Um, and so they said, you know what? We're going to drive the stock up. We're actually going to buy the stock. And what that did was it caused hedge funds to lose billions of dollars. Uh, my understanding is right now it, the number stands about $20 billion lost by some of these hedge funds. I understand that one of the hedge funds that was really deep into to shorting uh, GameStop's stock uh, lost almost 50% of its value. Okay, so this is this is serious business right now. Now, when this happened, the Reddit traders got a huge amount of applause from folks who felt like hedge funds were only really getting what they deserved. But depending on who you talk to, people place the blame in different places because there are some people that are blaming GameStop traders for what they see as really reckless behavior, uh, for what they see as, as, as adding volatility uh, to the market in some ways that could really hurt the people that were, were trading with uh, the GameStop traders. But others would say that the hedge fund, uh, the hedge funds are really responsible because of how they always manipulate the market and that they were really only getting a taste of their own medicine because apps like Robinhood had uh, leveled the playing field to it to a certain extent so that they couldn't just take folks out, that they could actually get taken out. Right. So this is the back and forth that we're be, we're hearing. Did they get their own medicine? Was this reckless by some of the, the GameStop traders and so on? Now, it's interesting to, to know that that folks like Tesla, Tesla CEO Elon Musk believes that the practice of short selling should be illegal. Right. He, he's actually said that. And remember that when you're, you're short selling, you're, you're, you're basically trading stocks that you're borrowing. Right. And his point is this. You can't sell houses that you don't own. You can't sell cars that you don't own, but you can sell stocks that you don't own. That's a quote from Elon Musk. He says that shorting is a scam. Now, I will mention that there's some people who were shorting Tesla stock. And so he has some beef with some of these hedge funds folks. But that's his that's his stance. But maybe the more immediate controversy here is that when when these hedge funds lost all this money, the Robinhood Act app, who was supposed to be the one kind of leveling the playing field, started restricting what folks who were on that app could buy. For a while, they no longer were letting them buy GameStop stock. They were no longer letting them buy AMC stock. And they were saying, they came out and said, well, we're doing this because of the potential market volatility. But a lot of people said, hold on. This happens, you know, this kind of stuff happens all the time with the manipulation from the hedge funds. You're just trying to protect the big boys. You're not looking out for the retail traders. You're trying to protect the big boys. And if you look at the timing of when all this happened, it does look a little bit fishy to restrict trading on those certain stocks based on what happened to some of these larger uh, uh, hedge, hedge funds. Now, the other thing that we have to see and recognize is that there was some animus at play here, too. 
many of the Reddit traders seem to be trying to make the big investors pay again for how they manipulate the market. A lot of them were making public statements like this is what you get. The American people had to, the American taxpayers had to bail you out. And this is us getting back at you. So it brings this whole conversation of should this be regulated? How should this be regulated? And so on. Again, I'm not an expert, but what we have to realize is a lot of the folks who will be voting on this in Congress aren't experts on this either. So it's a conversation that we need to be having. And Chris, I just want to get your feel for what you are thinking about this whole game stop back and forth. All right. So here's the thing for me. There have been a lot of different uh, takes on this, and there's so many uh, ways that you can go with this conversation and things that that really have to be thought through. Uh, and I, I think you laid it out masterfully, by the way, um, for for all of us non-experts. Uh, but I've been really into this because as, as an organizer, uh, this uh, got me stirred. It drew me in uh, a lot because before we analyze or as we analyze the motivations of the uh, of the redditors and the um, the moral rightness or lack thereof of of the whole uh, hedge fund uh, situation and shorting stocks and all that stuff um, what what I see is a group here uh, that had leadership and had uh, a shared belief and value system had a deeply and broadly felt uh, desire or pain that they were feeling uh, together. They had a plan uh, and then they had a place, you know, to get together and discuss their plans and discuss their ideas. And most of all, they were able to uh, get themselves together and muster the collective will to act together on that plan. Um, and when I see that, I see organizing. Um, and it is, uh, to me, something something to look at. I mean, this uh, group of people have been able to do something together that none of them would have been able to do alone, to do something together that nobody was really trying to make a way for them to do. I mean, they created a, a new path forward uh, or in, in the direction that they were trying to go. Um, some would call it forward, some would call it some other way, but they did it together. And that idea of collective action, uh, Justin, to me, is a very basic principle of the scripture. I think we see it um, demonstrated throughout the, the scripture. We see it in, in precept and we see it in demonstration throughout the scripture, probably nowhere better than Ecclesiastes chapter four, uh, that talks about two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. Uh, 11 says, if they lie down together, they will keep warm, but who can keep warm alone? And 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a three, threefold cord is not easily broken. Uh, so this collective idea, this basic idea that we can do more together, uh, I think is a biblical idea. My, my Twitter handle is Chris the Citizen. And I chose that, Justin, because one of my favorite quotes uh, in the world is one from Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I love that quote because I think it gives voice to a principle that is uh, core to the scripture uh, and core to our 
uh, kind of democratic way of life. And you see people use the idea of collective action to do really bad things uh, in the world. Um, almost nothing great happens without it. Like sometimes we we feel like, you know, folks are not organizing. Even, even the, the hedge fund folks, right? Like they organize. Like you saw a whole lot of different people and institutions kind of close ranks against the Redditors uh, as soon as this thing starts to go down. So those folks organized. Uh, the Redditors were organized. The, even the Capitol rioters were organized. Um, and, and people use collective action to do a lot of bad in the world. Uh, but as I look at this, I think that the best thing we can do is, as the church is, is, is be instructed in this moment. Um, especially those of us who are and campaign people who are committed to uh, realizing both the compassion, the conviction of scripture in the public square. I think this is an instructive moment um, because if, if you're in this camp, you know what it's like to feel politically homeless and a little bit politically powerless and, and feel like at times that real change is too hard because you have these giants to the left, you have these giants to the right and, little or less in the middle. Uh, but what I see in this is, is, is another testimony to this truth that we see in the scripture, that if we come together and think together and plan together, and most of all, act together, that we can do tremendous good uh, in the world. So out of everything that's happening here, I hope that, that we are using it, Justin, as a moment for learning uh, and, and, and encouragement toward collective action because we can do a lot more together than we can ever do apart. I hear you, man. So so what I'm hearing for you is not that you approve of all collective action. Are you saying even this was a, a necessarily a great thing? It could have been, but that it does give us an understanding that collective action makes things happen uh, and, 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 and can uh, kind of impact and, and bring about some change. I like that. And let me add this to the conversation too, Chris. Um, there's something that is in the background of this controversy that I think I, I have to talk about. Something that I'm very serious about. Something that people in my own family have have suffered had suffered from, which is hedge funds in part caused the subprime mortgage crisis and the subsequent 2008 financial collapse by adding too much risk to the market. And by creating adverse incentives, I think it's hard to argue against that. And it's not everybody, but it was some very irresponsible and, and, and very uh, uh, greedy hedge funds that were a huge part of what happened. They created basically mortgage backed securities that were bundles of trash, mm -hmm. uh, really in an effort to beat the market, which is what they're always trying to do to beat the market. And I've said this more than once on this podcast. I think that the subprime mortgage crisis and the subsequent 2008 financial crisis was one of the greatest injustices in America in several decades. I really do believe that. Um, if you look at what it did, you see very clearly that it gutted the middle class, that financial institutions were bailed out. And then those same financial institutions that were bailed out didn't even try in good faith to renegotiate these people's loans so that they could get their houses back. That was part of the agreement. It didn't have teeth in it. So they got around it. 
but most of them didn't even try in good faith to make that happen. These folks gave out loans that they knew would fail and then made money on betting against those loans. While average Americans were wiped out, Chris. About 10 million Americans lost their homes during the crisis. 10 million Americans all over the country. Do we have any idea? I mean, do do people have any idea if you haven't been through that? What it feels like to lose your home that you might have worked for for years and years and years. To lose your home and then find out that you lost it because of foul play, that you lost it because some people don't have to follow the rules that you have to follow. To understand that some of the folks, the folks that were bailed out, not only did they get bailed out and survive and nobody went to jail and none of that stuff happened, but some of these same folks were getting bonuses after that happened. And you lost everything. And for the people always telling Christians, and I'm on this a lot because it really upsets me because it's very such a simple and bad way to view things. For the people always telling Christians to just choose a side. To just go along with whatever Democrats say or just go along with whatever Republicans say. Let me tell you something. Neither Republicans nor Democrats did enough to protect the American people from this crisis. Nor did they fight hard enough to get the people their houses back. So if you just want to go along with Republicans or go along with Democrats, you would have been part of the same conversation. And we look at the Senate and we see that our senators make one hundred and seventy four thousand dollars a year. But there are so many of them who are billionaires who are all in these markets. Now, you know, it's not our style on the on the church politics podcast to impugn a whole group. And so we're not impugning all senators, but that is fishy. And so if you want to just go along with it because you think Republicans are so bad or you think Democrats are so bad, then you can just go along with it. But we're not going to go along with that. And if you want to learn more, because it's important not just to listen to us, we never tell you to listen to us. Check into what we say, challenge what we say if you need to. But if you want to learn more about this housing crisis, I would advise you to read the book Home Records. It's called Home Records How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnets, Crooked Banks, and Vulture Capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. By Aaron Glantz. Chris, I'm gonna let you finish this off, man. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're getting at it, Justin. Um, that that subprime mortgage lending crisis uh, it, it angers me. I mean, it it hit uh, right in, in in my family, and, and we don't have time on this podcast to go uh, into that. Um, but it, it hit right there, um, and and this current situation is only speaking again to the fact that a lot of times you you can't just trust a party uh, to stand up on these issues, especially these economic issues. I mean, and, and we have to know as Christians that economic injustice, uh, read the prophets, man, that is the stuff that brings down nations. 
Um, and so we, we shouldn't be comfortable to sit idly by and watch economic injustice. And certainly, I love the word that, that you used already, Justin, fishy. Um, it's, it's difficult because I'm not a financial guy. Uh, to sort through all the details of this. But when you see uh, a group of folks take an action like this and the entire establishment uh, kind of uh, close rank and coalesce against it, it's fishy. Uh, so we need to pay attention to this. Uh, and, and as believers, I think we need to take it as a moment to learn some things about how we can act, uh, but also to to really come face to face with the with the idea that there is serious economic injustice uh, in this country. And that's not good. That's a word. Well, we will be right back with some more for you on the Church Politics Podcast. All right. And can't we are back and. Those of you who've been listening for the last couple of weeks know that we had a conversation about uh, we really went in detail about Biden's covid relief plan uh, a few weeks back. We also talked about how he needs 10 Republicans or 10 Republican votes uh, to pass this uh, relief legislation through the normal legislative process. Uh, Well, since our conversation or since we first brought it up. 10 moderate Republican senators have presented Biden with a counter proposal. And I just kind of want to go through that proposal and compare the different parts of what Biden had and what uh, the Republicans are uh, proposing. So in Biden's plan, you know that there was a fourteen hundred dollar direct payment to uh, to Americans. Uh, That would be in addition to the six hundred that had come earlier. The Republican plan uh, would cut that down to a thousand dollars. And I think they would want means testing and things of that nature. And so that's one difference that we see. Uh, Biden's plan had four hundred dollars of federal unemployment benefits through September. The Republican plan has three hundred dollars for federal unemployment benefits uh, through through June 3rd, 30th. Okay, that's a pretty big difference. One thing that they got on the same page on was uh, the money going for vaccines, virus testing and personal protective equipment. Both put about one hundred and sixty billion dollars for that particular part of uh, the plan. Uh, Biden had twenty five billion dollars for child care. Uh, the Republicans had twenty billion dollars for child care. That may be something that they can uh, come to terms on. And then when it comes to reopening schools, Biden had one hundred and thirty billion dollars for reopening schools, whereas the Republican plan had twenty billion dollars for that same uh, initiative. Now, again, to get this past a a regular legislative process where you would need, you know, 60 votes or whatever, um, he needs 10 Republican votes. Uh, There is an alternative, though, to passing the legislation through the normal process. They can pass it through what's called budget reconciliation. And we talked about budget reconciliation a few times on this podcast. But if they were to pass it through that process, they wouldn't need any Republican votes at all. Um, And uh, it would allow them to get this legislation passed without getting 60 votes needed to get past the filibuster. They would be able to pass this by a simple majority and they'd have enough votes if you add in uh, Kamala Harris to get that done. It, it is a process that basically fast tracks certain budget items. So it's a budget process that says, hey, you can get around uh, the filibuster to get certain budget items that need to go through fairly quickly. So that's something that they can do. 
And this process would start with a budget resolution. And that budget resolution has already been introduced by uh, House Democrats, which kind of in a way as they're they're going through these conversations. So Biden just met with the the 10 Republicans, uh, I think, uh, yesterday, which would be Monday. And uh, this kind of places them in the hot seat a little bit because it's saying, hey, we're going to try to negotiate with you, but we're also going to go and start this process that we would need you to pass. Okay, so we'll we'll just see how this works out. But one thing that people have to talk about is where Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin, is going to stand on this. He is the Democratic senator for uh, West Virginia. And if you know anything about West Virginia, he represents a lot of Republicans in that state. Too. Many people have been talking about how Joe Manchin is really the most important senator uh, in the United States right now, just because of how he's positioned, because he is somewhat moderate, because he is willing from time to time to go against the Democrats. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. But, uh, Chris, just wanted to hear generally how you felt about um, about uh, these two, uh, just the, 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 the whole relief, you know, uh, back and forth and, and these two plans in particular. Yeah, I mean, so I am going to. uh just come to, I, I think that this uh, is, is uh, I don't know, Justin, I, I'm trying to watch my words, but it seems like uh, a little bit silly hour. At very least, it's very uh, discouraging. Um, one, the fact that we're talking about, we're talking more about Senator Joe Manchin and uh, other members of Congress and a lot less about President Joe Biden um, is is just a little bit disconcerting to me. I would rather see the president um, going a little bit harder on this issue of COVID relief. Um, and and I want to say why, right? Uh, they staked, he staked Georgia, Justin, where you live, that runoff election on this issue. Uh, the, the, the president-elect at the time uh, went to Georgia and told folks in Georgia, um, and by extension, folks across the country, send me a majority in the Senate and those stimulus checks are going to go out the door immediately. His words go out the door immediately. And I think he has to keep his word. I think he has to be out there aggressively trying to keep his word, um, not just because he's a a, a professed believer. You know, he was sworn in on maybe the largest Bible in history. Um, And, uh, you know, for his own sake, I think he has to try to really be aggressive about keeping his word. But also, Justin, because of the the trouble that our democracy is already in, we cannot afford any more broken promises. Um, So when I talk about the, the idea of seeing him be more aggressive, is not really me making the argument on uh, the policy position, right? Whether uh, this is is the right policy approach. It's not me making the argument of the very real economic pain that tens of millions of people are experiencing every day, even today, uh, in this country because of the COVID pandemic. Um, is I want to see him do it because of something a little bit more visceral, uh, and it is the the idea, Justin, that. People need to know that somebody is not a liar, right? Like somebody can be counted on to do the things that they say that they're going to do. And we're recording this uh, this podcast on day 13 of the Biden presidency. And any hope of salvaging some semblance of 
immediacy, the immediacy that was talked about in Georgia is fading right now. And it's a lot of back and forth. All, the 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 promise is changing. You know, it, it went from 2000 to 1400, which, okay, there was an argument there. Now we're talking about means testing. Now we're talking about being open to, to less funds. And, and for me, it's not like, you know, now I could make an argument for we need to have stimulus and we need to have relief, but this is not even that argument, Justin. This is simply the idea that America needs in this moment, somebody to do what the heck they said they were going to do and just do it. Um, if there's a negotiated position here, it is do stimulus checks on regular order so that it's quick and do all the rest of that stuff on reconciliation, you know, in the reconciliation process. Uh, but this is the kind of stuff that erodes our democracy. This is the kind of stuff that that destroys the public trust when a person goes out and says one thing and then comes back and starts doing something completely else. Um, and so it is it's frustrating to me. And I don't know, Justin, is, is it is it possible that the White House doesn't see it this way, doesn't understand this? Am I very wrong about it? I don't know. Yeah, we will see. I mean, you make a good point as far as the, the public trust. It's very clear. And me being in, in Georgia, I can say for sure that those senators ran on the fact that if you put me in there, you're going to get these $2,000 checks. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity there because is, is it the 2000 since the first check or is it 2000 once Biden gets in? And a lot of people have been upset that that number has already gone down to fourteen hundred. A lot of people are saying, well, you're already not uh, um, keeping your promise because you use that ambiguity to, to cut the to cut the check already. So that's something that he's going to have to deal with. And it's looking more and more like that these folks are going to be willing or that the Democrats are going to be willing to do this. Uh, through the reconciliation process, those two thousand dollar checks or whatever, I guess they're going to be fourteen hundred now are very popular. Uh, if, if you know, I don't I'm not one to, to run all every decision uh, through through polls and data. But that's something that American people have been very clear that they want to happen. Uh, you know, you, we can talk about the deficit hawks. You can talk about the debt and all and all that stuff. American people are saying, look, we're in a tough place. That's something we want to happen. That was a message that those campaigns were very clear on. And we'll see if they're going to keep it. I, I, I you know, it's, it's also going to put the Republicans in a tough position because it's like, are we really going to stand in the way of getting this relief? I think everybody understands that the relief is necessary. And so if you force their hand, are all of you going to vote a, a, against this and basically say we can say, hey, when it was time to help you, help you, they didn't want to help you. We'll see if the Republicans are willing to do this. But more and more, it's looking like they're going to be um, really they're not going to have the leverage to stop this from happening. And now it's kind of going to be a messaging game and where they want to go from there. Anything else on that, Chris? Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with what you're saying. I, I, I will reassert, though, that it is unfortunate that Nancy Pelosi and uh, and and Chuck Schumer are leading the charge on this. I would love to see the president of the United States. Uh, who who went and put his words out there, his neck out there in Georgia. I would love to see the president of the United States uh, being the force behind this, not sending the vice president to to West Virginia and looking at the congressional leaders to uh, to, to be the face and, and the voice uh, of this. I would love to see the president doing it. If, if we started talking about Joe Manchin, is, let Joe Manchin pull a John McCain on these stimulus checks. I mean, do what you said you were going to do. There it is. All right. We're going to take another break and then we'll get to our last segment. We'll be right back. 
Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. All right, Ann Camp, we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It's Justin Gibney and Chris Butler. We want to talk a little bit more about an aspect of this whole COVID back and forth, one that's that's really been on my mind for a while. And I've been wondering how this was going to turn out. As many of you know, while Trump Trump played goat and when I say goat, I don't, I don't mean greatest of all time, but Trump really played goat based on some of his decisions during the COVID crisis, which looked like he was worried about other things or he just wasn't. Um, centering the concerns of America, Americans and didn't really have a plan. He played goat for a while. Somebody else who was New York Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, was widely praised for his efforts. Some uh, some friends I even know who, who were, were kind of wishing that he was actually one of the presidential candidates. And all this was occurring and it was loud and people really were in his current corner. But all this was occurring despite some decisions that many conservatives at the time and, and more independent folks said were huge miscalculations. Uh, during this time when when a lot of folks were going in on Trump, and we know in this podcast it said he made many mistakes, so this isn't a defense of Trump in this regard. But during this time, Governor Cuomo even received an Emmy for his quote-unquote masterful COVID-19 briefings where he exuded this air of confidence, competence, and strength. But when we take a look a little closer at some of the decisions that were made during this time, there's some serious room to question whether or not all this praise was warranted. Was Kumo actually the brilliant leader that all of America needed in this crisis? Or was he simply benefiting from being juxtaposed to Trump? One particular mistake has, has uh, got a lot of people riled up and was really ignored by the media in general all of uh, 2020. And this mistake occurred on March 25th when a directive came out from the Kumo administration saying that all nursing homes should accept COVID-19 patients. This decision, this one decision spread the virus among a highly vulnerable demographic, the most vulnerable demographic. Some people are saying this was one of the worst decisions that were made during this time. It was a devastating mistake that, again, was ignored by many until now, right? Now, now we're hearing, and it's getting worse for, for, for Kumo, now we're hearing that new, the New York State Attorney General is saying that Kumo's administration 
undercounted COVID deaths of how of, of nursing home residents by not publicly disclo- disclosing deaths of those res- residents that occurred in hospitals. The numbers were more than 40 percent higher than the administration was reporting. OK. Now, maybe there's plausible deniability and this didn't come from 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 Kuma. We don't know that there needs to be an investigation on that. But we do know that it's looking like those numbers were 40 percent lower than they really should have been. It wasn't reported accurately. Now, after saying that Trump was ignoring science and not listening to the experts, uh, Kumo really went in on this. We're now seeing that nine of Kumo's top health officials have quit. Have felt disrespected or felt like they weren't being listened to. Um, and he recent went, recently went so far to say, no, I don't trust the experts right now, which is the opposite of what every progressive and Democrat was saying while Trump was in office. During this time, he was getting interviewed by his brother and laughing about mom's oatmeal and all this other stuff. And I kept thinking, man, this is a huge conflict of interest. How in this serious time where even if you are doing a good job, thousands of people are still dying. How is it that you're interviewed by your brother on CNN and that's being shown all around? Didn't make much sense. And here's the kicker, though, Chris. My man even wrote a book on his leadership during the COVID crisis. That's right. My man wrote a book about his leadership before the crisis was over. The book was called American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. What does this tell you, Chris? What do you get from this whole back and forth and, and how, you know, we see Kumo kind of be made a hero? Now, I do want to back up a little bit. And we even said this with Trump. These are hard decisions to make. So we're not saying that there was any, you know, um, anything, you know, super negative going on or he was, you know, or he was not trying to do the best that he could. These are very hard decisions. And one small decision can have huge impacts. But that's what comes with leadership. OK. Um, and while Trump was getting a lot of, uh, I think, uh, well-warranted criticism. You see Como really shining and looking like this huge leader. What, what does that tell us about what's going on and how do you think it affects the crisis in general, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's so many things uh, wrong with this whole positioning of, uh, of Gov- Governor Cuomo uh, through this entire deal, especially, I mean, constantly appearing on CNN. But uh, that aside, you know, what I thought about here, Justin, you know, and I know we, we talk uh, civics and politics, brass tacks, uh, but I'm going to jump a little existential on this 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 uh, this time, because when I when I looked at this story, it made me uh, think about and maybe it's because it's the beginning of Black History Month. But it made me uh, think about uh, a question that I do think about a lot, you know, pastoring and just where I'm positioned with a lot of uh kind of older folks in my world. Uh, and that's the question of who's standing up for our elders um, in this time. Uh, the, the thing to me that makes this story most disgusting is that the, the victims were elderly people. Um, and, you know, you, you can't just treat people. Humans are not like, uh, clothes or appliances, right? Like you can't just throw them out because they, they get old. And, you know, this applies not just to 
like the human body, but I think it also, it applies to the human soul, like the experiences of people, people's ideas uh, and their legacies. And, and I think if you bear with me for just a moment, I think that there is a weird notion afoot in contemporary progressivism that everything that is old is immediately um, suspect or expendable, um, that, that there is virtue in staying young and little honor in growing old and that, you know, like new ideas are better than traditional ideas just by virtue of the fact that they are new. And that I think that kind of thinking is pervasive and dangerous. And while I am not at all saying that this was some kind of like scheme to, you know, to push aside older Americans, I wonder, Justin, when I look at this story, just how much of that plays into the initial decision and the way, you know, the administration chose, which we don't know all the details, but the way it looks like the administration chose to respond to those things, uh, the way uh, media has covered it, um, you know, like, where is our, like, that that kind of old school honor for our elders? Like, this should have everybody, like, hopping mad, um, you know, and the fact that, you know, we're talking more about GameStop then we're talking about this, uh, just, it gives me a, a little bit of pause. It makes me say, you know, is, is there something wrong with, with our culture in that regard? Man, you make a very good point. And I think what you're hitting on, Chris, is presentism, right? Within, within progressive spaces where what's new, the new idea is better. The, the young people are always right. You know, all those things that we see over and over again in pop culture and academia and so on. And, and, and really, it's part of the flatness. And we're going to keep bringing this up. It's part of the flatness that we see. But you do get the feeling with all of this that we just didn't have the human dignity of our elders in mind sometimes. Um, and it's. It's unfortunate. I mean, because they 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 have taken the brunt and all of us and our parents and grandparents, we've been worried, you know, that they would make it through this. And some of us have lost them. But they really did take the brunt of what went on with COVID-19. And this is a you know, this is a prime example. The, the sad thing is everything except the numbers, except, you know, us knowing that the numbers were underreported. A lot of folks knew that decision was made. People were talking about that decision. But then some folks didn't want to report on it. Some folks didn't want to really investigate it. And it looked like you had one standard for the folks that you like and another standard for the folks that we didn't like. And I think a lot of folks and like I said, I had friends who were bragging about uh, what what uh, Kuma was doing. A lot of folks just fell for the okie doke. A lot of fo- folks just bought into the hype of what's, what was going on, but didn't place that same level of scrutiny on all the decisions of all the leaders. Uh, and, and it comes down to this. Um you know, I heard it said one time, and, and this was really poignant to me, not calling anybody any particular animal, but what's the difference between a squirrel and a rat? What I mean, if you think about it, what really is the difference between a squirrel and a rat? And the answer that they that I heard was PR, public relations. Squirrels have better PR than rats do. OK. Um, and, and again, I'm not calling anybody in this situation a rat, but you get the idea. That's what kind of makes the big distinction between the two. We cannot let PR play us, right? This is another reason why we said, I think it was last week, um, make sure that you're going to different sources 
to check what you're doing. I think you called it media hygiene, right? Make sure that you're going to different sources because if you were going to different sources, like I know me and Chris were, you would have seen that some of these decisions were suspect. And and the and the worst thing about this whole thing to me, one of the worst things about not the worst thing, the worst thing is is the folks who passed away. But one of the the worst things about the the messaging here was the the defenses that he put up when he was asked about this. So when he was originally called out about that decision, he hid behind partisanship. He said that this was just a Republican attack. And too many of us, as soon as we hear something like that, we're like, OK, I'm going to dismiss what whatever the you know, what whatever the criticism was, because this is just them trying to tear us down. We can't do that, man. We, we just can't do that. And early on, Chris and I, because you were on the Church Politics podcast when this first happened. And one of the major points that we were making with Michael was that we can allow not allow this to get too partisan too quickly. And it's almost immediately that this became something that was partisan. This became about an opposition centered public witness. Progressives wanted to do everything opposite of Trump. And conservatives wanted to do everything opposite of what they were told by Fauci and other progressives. You tell us to wear masks. We're not going to wear masks. You tell us that maybe certain things do need to be opened up because there are other consequences. No, everything can be closed forever. And these were the dumbed down responses we got based on our opposition center public witness. Christians have to see through this. But I'm, I'm going to let you get the last word, uh, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think. You've said a very good word here. Uh, we we can't be played by PR um, because it costs too much, right? Like it's not because of partnership; it is because of witness, uh, and it's and it's because of the realities that uh, that people are experiencing uh, in their everyday lives, right? One of the uh, central theses of the uh, of the AIM campaign is that civics and politics is a platform uh, for us to love our neighbors um, and. If that's what we believe about politics, then being played by PR is not an option for us because every time we do, people hurt. And in this case, people die. And, you know, that's why we can't do it. Right. It's, it is the real cost in the, in the real lives of real people. Man, couldn't have said it better. Well, as always, brother, always love going back and forth with you, man. Hopefully we gave the people some things to think about and in camp as usual. Uh, There is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the compassion and the conviction of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp, we'll holler at you. Oh, Lord, I say kingdom.